Good evening, and welcome to tonight's Sheer. Chauffeur. What this Yom Tov is all about. So, what's interesting is how the Torah itself, and it's something which we discussed last year and the year before, the Torah itself does not call this holiday Rosh Hashanah. The way the Torah refers to it is actually as Yom Trua, which means the day of the sounding of the shofar. And that's because the core of the mitzvah of the day of what Rosh Hashanah is all about, its mitzvah is to blow the shofar. And it's interesting that in of itself, that the Torah itself does not specify why we do this particular mitzvah or what the holiday of Rosh Hashanah celebrates. Versus when it comes to Pesach, it tells us that Pesach is because God took us out of Egypt. We eat the matzah because God took us out of Egypt. We sit in huts on Sukkot because Hashem took care of the Jewish people in the desert. But when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, it leaves that all vague. That's already a concept we explored in past years. Tonight we're going to delve into the topic of Shafer, and specifically this year it comes out as interesting because on the first day of Rosh Hashanah this year, which is going to be on Shabbos, we will not be sounding the Shafer. Actually, hopefully we will with the coming of Mashiach, but if, God forbid, Mashiach does not come, we will not blow the Shafer on Shabbos, rather we will blow the Shafer on Sunday. Now why is it that we blow the Shafer in the first place? Like we said, the Torah is vague about it. But the Torah says it, so we do it. But what's the reasoning behind it? So many sages throughout history have tried to give many different reasons. And we're going to start off with a reading from the Abu Draham. The Abu Draham wrote a commentary on the Siddur, but he doesn't do it paragraph or concept by concept. He goes line by line, exploring it in the most fascinating way. He lived in the 14th century in Spain, one of the greatest works on explaining the Siddur. So, in the part where he explains the Shoifer, he brings us from Rabbi Nusadya Gaon. It's actually only a couple of years ago that we found this, you know, the original text of this writing of Rabbi Sadya Gaon. Rabbi Sadya Gaon was a great, great sage who lived in Iraq in the 9th century. And he's actually one of the first to compile some formulated prayer book called Seder Rabbi Sadya Gaon. And it's from there that we understand that there are 10 different reasons that he gives for why we blow the shofar. So you have this in source number one, you have it both in Hebrew and English. We're going to quickly cruise through them and seeing their value. He writes as follows. The first reason why we blow the shofar is that the day of Rosh Hashanah is the day that celebrates creation. Not creation of the world, rather creation of Human beings, Adam, Adam and Chava, were created on the sixth day, and that's when we celebrate Rosh Hashanah. So six days earlier than that was the first day of creation. But it's celebrating the coronation process of crowning Hashem as king. As we know that immediately after being created, Adam went ahead and called out, Hashem, Melech, Geus, Lavish, how God wears the cloak of royalty, that God is the king of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth. The second reason given why we blow the shofar, oh sorry, and therefore, blowing of the shofar was something which was done at ancient ceremonies, ancient coronation ceremonies, as was done by David HaMalach, and therefore, the Torah commands us to blow shofar on Rosh Hashanah as a time of coronating God as our king. So, it's a coronation process. 
The second reason he gives, it's to wake us up and say, guess what? You have 10 days of tshuva, as it is called, which starts from Rosh Hashanah and leads us up into Yom Kippur, which Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. And it's kind of just a call to everybody, hey, it's time to return, it's time to repent, it's time to change and improve your ways and return to God. So it's almost like an alarm clock, the wake-up call. A third reason he gives is commemorating our commitment at Har Sinai, at Mount Sinai, when the Torah was given, as it says in the verse in the book of Exodus, that when the Torah was given, the sound of the shofar was played to the people. And it's to remember our commitment to God, that just like we stood at Sinai committing to God over 3,000 years ago, every year on Rosh Hashanah we recommit to God in our commitment of Torah on this day. A fourth reason that he gives is that the shofar is referred to by Ezekiel as the sound of the shofar is the words of the prophets. But it's not just that the words of the prophets are like the shofar, because what does that really mean? The idea there is that in every generation, there is a prophet who echoes the voice of God, who brings the voice of God to the people that changes from generation to generation to realize that it's not enough just to have the Torah and just to have ancient scripture, but rather the call of the time, the call of the hour, is something we must be in tune to. And that is what's novel about prophecy. And that's why the words of the prophets are like the words of the shofar. And you had this all the time, that when prophets would cry out and scream out, a hundred years later, or after their passing, people were like, oh, Mao, maybe they were right. The issue was that at the time when it was novel, at the time when it was something that was new to them, they weren't willing to accept it. A fifth reason given, and that is that the shofar, the call of the shofar, is to arouse us to ask God for the building of the Beis HaMikdash, whether it is due to the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash or before, because they were blowing shofar before the, the first Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, as we know. So it couldn't have just been for the sake of destruction, but for the sake of having the Beis HaMikdash. And of course, even more relevant, when the Beis HaMikdash was no longer standing, when it stood in ruins, it's a cry for us to want to rebuild the Beis HaMikdash again. A sixth reason given is because we know that when Hashem convinced or challenged really Avram Avinu to take his son Yitzchak as a sacrifice, and while on the altar, which this actually took place on Rosh Hashanah, while on the altar, Hashem tells, sends the angel to tell Avram not to go through with it, and instead there was a sheep or ram that was caught in the bushes by its horns, and that horn was the right, actually says in the Medrash, that the right horn was used by Matan Terah, and the left horn will be used when Mashiach will come. But that idea there is to remind us of the self-sacrifice that both Avram and Yitzchak had, and that we're meant to get in touch with that self-sacrifice on Rosh Hashanah Day itself, reminding ourselves of our commitment to Hashem. The seventh is to bring us to a state of awe and trepidation in front of God, on this special day, as the verse in Amos says, if this shofar will be sounded in the city, will there be anybody who will not tremble? And that's supposed to bring us into that mode on this special day of Rosh Hashanah. The eighth reason given is to remind us and to bring awareness 
of what the Prophet Sifania writes of the day of judgment that will take place when Mashiach will come. And that doesn't mean that it's a day of anger, angry judgment, but rather a day of judgment meaning a day of bringing us to our full potential of when Mashiach will come, where Hashem is going to show us which, you know, the full potential that we could have accomplished and that we may not have, and to bring us back and to recalibrate. The ninth reason given is to remind us that Hashem will collect us from Gullus, collect us from exile, and bring Mashiach, as the Prophet says in Isaiah, that on that day there will sound the great shaifer, when Hashem will bring us all in from all the scattered parts of the world. And the tenth reason that Rabbi Nusad Yagon gives, based on the verse in Shai, that when the resurrection of the dead will happen, there will be the sounding of the shofar, and it's to remind us of that time. So these are ten general reasons that Rabbi Nusad Yagon felt or understood as to why the Torah gives us the command on Rosh Hashanah for blowing the shofar. Okay, so have all of that in mind when they're blowing the shofar. <laughs> now, we're going to give one more reason. And that's reason number 11. This is in source number 2, and this is from the Rambam. And the Rambam writes as follows. Even though blowing the shofar on Rosh Hashanah is what is called Xeris HaKasuf. In other words, it's not necessarily something with a reason. It's something that we do because the Torah says so, and that's why we do it. However, he says, Rem is Yeshua, but there's some kind of hint over here, and that is as follows. There's a message that the shofar is giving, and this is the true core of the shofar. And what's fascinating is the Rambam does not put this in the laws of Rosh Hashanah. He puts this in the laws of repentance. And that is, that those who are sleeping and slumbering should wake up from their sleep. They should reckon their actions and they should return with tshuva and remember their creator. This refers to the people who forget what truth is because of the vanity vanity of the times, and they end up spending their times in the vanity of the times. They end up completely wasting away. Why? Because of what time and what right now, what the great fad of what import, what is important, as opposed to turning to Hashem and asking Hashem, the eternal creator of heaven and earth, of what is important. Torah and mitzvahs are timeless. Torah and mitzvahs are always important. What the fads of the time, they come and they go. But unfortunately, the nature of human beings is to get caught up in that. And the shofar is a wake-up call to number one, tshuva, which is similar to the second reason of Rabbi Nusad Yagoyin. But number two, it's the wake-up call to stop being distracted by the vanities and the fads of the time. And that's what the Ram is bringing to the table in that sense. So these are all very powerful reasons for the shofar. And we know how, really, you know, it doesn't take... A, a great scholar to see how the shofar, when it's blown in Shalom Rosh Hashanah, how it really shakes people up. It has that nature of accomplishing all of these and maybe even more. But the real question is, so is the shofar a call to us or is it a call to Hashem? And the answer is yes. <laughs> it's really both. And we're going to explore that now. It's like they, but they, before that a joke, they tell a story about the thief Jewish thief, you know, every, everybody has to make a living somehow, and he was a talented thief, so he decided that, that would be his profession. And one night he breaks into, unknowingly, breaks into the rabbi's house. 
he climbs down the chimney. And as he's crawling out, bringing himself to his feet, he sees there's somebody sitting by the table with a candle learning. He's shocked because he sees the rabbi. The rabbi is disturbed from his learning. He looks up. The man looks at the rabbi. The rabbi says, can I help you? He says, yes. How do I get out of here? <laughs> so the Baal Shem Tev gives a parable of the shoifer. And he says that there was once a great king who he and his son, the prince, soon to be king, decided together that it would be best for the child to leave the kingdom and to really explore the world and explore different cultures so he can really learn what it means to be a true leader and to attend to the needs of the people. He sent the prince with a lot of money, with many helpers, to be able to make this trip you know, something that he would survive doing, but at the same time have the luxuries of what it meant to be a prince. But as they went on, the prince uh, got hooked on substances that he should not have. Each place he went, he decided to try what the people are trying, to do what the people are doing, getting caught up in the vanities of the times and places that he was traveling. Slowly but surely, he starts to lose his money. He starts to spend through his money to the point where he has to fire the servants that went along with him just to be able to afford living life. Next thing you know, he finds himself on his own. And he's away from his father and the kingdom for many, many years. Completely caught up in a life he never planned on living. And a life that was completely foreign to him. But that's who he became. After many years, he finally made his journey back home. As he gets home, he meets some of the townspeople. But he looks nothing like he used to. Talks nothing like he used to. And acts nothing like he used to. Trying to convince him that he's the prince... They start making a mock of this homeless person who came from nowhere, came from a foreign land, to the point that they start playing some pranks on him, to the point of even, unfortunately, beating him. Finally, making it away, he makes it towards the palace, trying to let, get the guards to let him in, and they would not let him in. And he's screaming and he's screaming, but they won't let him in because he doesn't talk like somebody from the royal palace. He talks at best like a peasant. And it's not just what he says, it's the way he says it. And to the point that he has nothing to do but just to scream, Father, Father. While screaming, Father, Father, the king happened to have been in the garden. And hears the cry of his son. When he hears the cry of his son, he comes running, lets the guards know, and father and son embrace once again. The prince is now home. The Rebbe Marash, in 1879, explain to the Chassidim, explain to his community that the idea that the Baal Shem Tev is trying to convey with this parable is not the fact that the son is calling out father, but the fact that the son is screaming. Because it could very well be that the son was saying father in a way that the king himself cannot even understand what he was saying, but it was the scream itself that the king was able to recognize. And it's this idea that the Rebbe Marash once taught another time how the great power of what is called a krechts, a sigh of a Jew. When a Jew is sitting in a bad situation, be it physical or spiritual, and just the sigh and the cry of that this is unacceptable, this is not where I belong, that itself already puts the person in a much greater place, in a sense of footing and in a sense of goodness. And that's because it's about the rejection of becoming something that I'm not.
With this idea, I'd like to elaborate a little bit, and we can appreciate something fascinating. When it comes to blowing the shoifer, right before, in synagogues around the world, we read an interesting passage in Tehillim. And that is the passage number 47. It says, For the conductor of the songs of of the sons of Karach, a song. Which means, who were, who was the one who composed this song? So even Psalms, was com- we say, was composed by King David. But many of these Psalms were actually composed by earlier composers, and King David put them together. There are 11 Psalms throughout the Tehillim that were composed by the sons of Karach. Now, who were these sons? Let's understand. We all remember this story from when Karach led a rebellion against Moshe Rabbeinu, asserting that there is no such thing as a connection between, that there is nobody between the Jewish people and God, and that all the communication coming from Moshe was fake. It was stuff that he was making up. He just wanted to have a power play, and that the communication of divinity was 100% made up by Moshe. God forbid. And guess who were the leaders of this rebellion? It was actually Karach's sons. However, in the moment where Moshe Rabbeinu says we must find the truth here, because if this is not proven one way or the other, forever we will doubt the authenticity of Torah and the authenticity of Judaism. And that's what Moshe Rabbeinu says, let Hashem show. If Moshe Rabbeinu speaks the divine truth, let the ground open up and swallow them inside. And so it happened. However, these children of Karach, at that moment, decided in their hearts, realizing their mistakes, whether it was a little bit before or not, is up to debate in the commentaries. However, they had a change of heart, and it was at that moment that a little ledge was prepared for them, figuratively, at the pits of hell, and they were saved. But for many years, they stayed there. For about 38 years, they stayed there until they were able to come out and rejoin the Jewish people. And it was while they were there that they composed these songs singing about the Holy Land, singing about the Holy Temple, singing about God. And the question is, why do we even mention them in this psalm? If the whole reason for reading chapter 47, if you read through it, you'll see it makes different mentions of God as King. It makes different mentions of the power of the shofar, And that's why we read this this chapter. But the reality is we don't need to read the whole chapter. As we know, right after the shofar is blown, we read other verses, but we don't read the whole chapter. We select a few verses that are relevant to what the shofar accomplishes. And if that's the case, when it comes to the sons of Karach, why are they even mentioned? So beautiful interpretation, and that is that the, what those children of Karach, the Lubavitcher Rebbe explains, what they represent is that crying out from a bad situation rejecting a bad situation saying that this is not who I am. Because a lot of the time we become something that we're not. We find ourselves in a place we never imagined. We find ourselves in a place that we brought ourselves to, but we don't belong there. And it's the rejection of that saying that this is not who I am. This is not where I belong. That's where all change starts. It starts with that rejecting of that reality. And that is what the call of the shofar is. And that's why we mentioned the children of Karach right before blowing the shofar to teach the power of crying out even from the pits of hell. From the pits of a bad situation. 
Because that's where all change starts. When I can no longer tolerate this, when I can no longer rationalize or justify it, and change has to happen. It's the idea of ultimately recognizing that I am not my flaws. I am not my shortcomings. And it's only once I can recognize that can I actually start and create any change and make any change. With this idea, we can also appreciate why it is that on Rosh Hashanah, why it is that we have Rosh Hashanah before Yom Kippur. Essentially, if Rosh Hashanah is the Day of Judgment, should we not have the Day of Atonement before the Day of Judgment? Don't I want to have a clean slate before standing in front of the judge? Don't I want to rectify all my wrongs and all my sins before stepping in front of the judge? So why is it that we have Rosh Hashanah, the Day of Judgment, before Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement? And the idea is because Rosh Hashanah is all about that cry, that scream of being able to get out of the bad situation, of the child coming home to the king. And once I have that recognition and that connection with God, which is what the judgment is all about, now I have the next 10 days and then Yom Kippur to figure out how to smooth out all the details. How do I figure out how to solve all my flaws? How do I figure out how to live the life that I now see I should be living within my day-to-day? And how do I reintegrate that, integrate that into my life, which is represented by Yom Kippur? That's all the aspect of the shayfer, which talks to us. But then there's the aspect of the shayfer, which is talking to God, which is a call out to God. There are many different perspectives on this. We're going to focus on one for now, and that is what we mentioned in the beginning. It's crowning God, coronating God. And the idea is that the shayfer is not just an instrument played at the ceremony. Because if that's the case, you can play any instrument that they use at a ceremony. At most ceremonies, they wouldn't just use a shoifer. There would also be trumpets. There'd be other instruments. So why specifically the shoifer? Because it's a coronation. And the idea of the shoifer represents a very unsophisticated, primal call of the human voice without imposing anything on it. Just amplifying the cry of the human being. The primal call of the soul. And what is that? And that is the soul crying out to God saying, I am your subject. I recognize you, God, as creator of heaven and earth. And that's what inspires God to want to rule over the world for another year. Not that God wouldn't otherwise. It's like when I was in Yeshiva, when they taught us about this idea that we build a shayfar and Hashanah because we're crowning God as kings. I said, what happened? You used to think, you know, what happens if one year we all decide not to blow the shayfar? Is God not going to be king? You know, these are things that uh, yeshiva students think about at night. (laughs) And the reality is as follows. But before that, just a quick story. During the war between the Tsar, between Russia and Napoleon in 1812, Napoleon was on the attack in Russia and heavily attacking Russia. And it looked like Napoleon was actually had a chance of conquering Russia. There was a big debate in the Hasidic community whether to support Napoleon or the Tsar. Not the time to get into right now why, who sided with who, but the reality was the Alter Rebbe, the founder of the Chabad Hasidic movement, felt that it would be more important for Judaism and for the Jewish people that the Tsar should win. And therefore he supported the Tsar. There was another Rebbe at the time, the Kajanitzer Magid, a Hasidic Rebbe, Hasidic leader, who felt that it was more important that Napoleon should win. 
And they had a deal. Whoever blows Shreifer and Rosh Hashanah first is going to be the one that's going to set the tone for the year. It was that year on Rosh Hashanah that the Kajnitzer Magid in his shul, when it came time to blowing the Shreifer before he got up to blow, he let out a little bit of a sigh and he said, the Litvak, referring to the Lithuanian, the Alter Rebbe, got him already. Because he already had blown Shreifer and he had set the tone for the year. And it was a short few weeks later that the Russians ne- defeated Napoleon and his army. And the idea is as follows. Rosh Hashanah is really setting the tone for the year, coronating God as king for the year of what the year is going to look like. But it's not so simple that if we don't coronate God as king, he won't be king. It says in the davening, in the liturgy, that when it comes to kingship, it's accepted with will. It's accepted by the people. A real king is somebody who the people will accept as king. But, God forbid, if we reject God as king, it doesn't make him not a ruler. But then he becomes a moishel and a shaylet. Moishel and a shaylet would be a a tyrant or a dictator. What's the difference between a tyrant and a dictator or a king? Is that a king, everything he does is felt that this is the best interest of the people. The tyrant is doing what's in his own best interest. But when the people will reject the king, then even the greatest king becomes a tyrant. And that's the second aspect of Rosh Hashanah. Now, if Shoifer is so powerful and so necessary, how is it possible that in a year like this year we will not be blowing Shoifer on the first day of Rosh Hashanah? And that is, if you look at source number seven, you have the Mishnah and the Gemara. And the Gemara, the Mishnah tells us as follows, that when Rosh Hashanah falls out on Shabbos, during the times of the Beis Mikdash, they would blow Shoifer in the Mikdash, but not in the rest of Eretz Yisrael. However, when the base of Mikdash was destroyed in the year 68 or 70, Rabbi Yechem ben Zakkai, who then witnessed the destruction of the base of Mikdash, he established many different ways of commemorating the base of Mikdash. For example, in the times of the base of Mikdash, outside of the base of Mikdash, outside of Yushlaim, you only shook Lulav and Esrig on the first day. The rest of Yom Tif, you didn't shake Lulav and Esrik. Rabbi Yechem ben Zaka established that we shake it for seven days in order to commemorate the Beis HaMikdash. Because in the Beis HaMikdash, they would shake it all seven days. Another thing he established was that anywhere there was a Bezdin, a Jewish court, and the commentaries say specifically a court of 23 judges, wherever they were, they would blow the Shaifer. Now there's a question of how to understand that this is that just mean where the Sanhedrin sat in Yavne, or really the, the, the sorry, not the Sanhedrin, but the, the big court sat in Yavne, or does that mean anywhere in Eretz Yisrael, even outside of Eretz Yisrael? But that's what it says. Now, the real question is, why is it that we don't blow Shaifer when Rosh Hashanah falls out on Shabbos? So the Gemara itself asks that. So the Gemara in the, in, in the Jerusalem Talmud says that it's actually biblical, because one verse... In when the Torah talks about Rosh Hashanah in the book of Vayikra of Leviticus, it says 
Zichroin Shrua, which means a remembrance of blowing the shofar. Then when the Torah repeats and talks about Rosh Hashanah in the book of Bamidbar, the book of Numbers, it says, Yom Trua Yilachem, which means a day of sounding the shofar. So is it a remembrance or is it a day? So we're going to blow it or is it just going to remember it? She says the Gemara, very simple. During When Rosh Hashanah will fall out on a weekday, we'll blow the shofar. When Rosh Hashanah falls out on Shabbos, we'll only remember the shofar. That's what the Gemara, that's what the Gemara offers. But so then the Gemara challenges that and says, one second, if that's the explanation, so then how is it possible that in the base of Mikdash, they blew Shaifer on Shabbos? If the Torah itself is telling us that when it falls out on Shabbos, you don't blow it, there's no way that they would have blown it in the base of Mikdash. So it must not be that in the way that we reconcile this idea, not for right now. So the Gemara says, so in reality, so why don't we blow Shaifer on Shabbos? And the Gemara says that it was something that the rabbis enacted. And that is that blowing shofar itself is not considered one of the works that one is not allowed to do on Shabbos. However, it's considered a chachma, which means that it's a certain talent. Now, not everybody knows how to do it. And therefore, what might end up happening is that people will carry their shofar to the rabbi or to the shul or to somebody in town who does know how to blow shofar to help them blow the shofar. The problem with that is, what if they're living in a community where there is no what we call the Erev, which allows a person to carry from one domain to another domain on Shabbos, and they're going to end up carrying the Shaifer on Shabbos, which would be a grave transgression of the Holy Day of Shabbos, in order to hear the Shaifer. And because of this concern, the rabbis instituted that we're not going to blow the Shaifer on Shabbos, except for in the base of Mikdash. Why? Because rabbinic enactments of concern for Shabbos didn't exist in the base of Mikdash because in the base of Mikdash there was no concern because the Sanhedrin that bought the um, the high court of 71 sat there, the priests were highly trained in the base of Mikdash and therefore there was no concern for this these types of desecration. And now, how was Rabbi Yechon ben Zak able to extend that to courts or at least to Yavna after the destruction of the, base, of the, of the temple? And that's because it they had the same idea that only the court was able to blow the shofar, and this way nobody would bring their own shofar to court, and this way you circumvent the issue. And because of this, it's brought in the code of Jewish law that we will not blow the shofar when Rosh Hashanah falls out on Shabbos. Now, I do want to just point something out that the Rebbe, in his notes, says that according to the Alter Rebbe, and it's something which is phenomenal, is actually another reason that many miss. And the reason why we don't blow the shofar on Shabbos is because it's something called uvdin duchel, which means it's a mundane activity. And because it's a mundane activity, we don't do it on Yom Tif, on Shabbos. Now, really, so on Yom Tif, we shouldn't die there. He says, yeah, but the Torah tells you to do it on Yom Tif, so you can, the, the rabbis can't come along and restrict you from doing mundane activity on Yom Tif when the Torah says to do it. But if it's Shabbos, we're going to restrict you. But only in conjunction with the concern of carrying if it weren't for the concern of carrying, we would push off the concern of mundane activity and we would have blown. But because of the secondary concern of carrying the shofar from one domain to another, we take with it. Now, so we still have the question. We still have the question of if, we're but shofar is so powerful, we're missing everything, which means the call of the Jew, the primal call of the soul, coronating God as king, 
and what the whole entire year is set up on and changing our lives and shuvah and returning to God, how can we take that away? And seemingly it's for such a minuscule concern. Because think about who's going to carry it. Somebody doesn't know how to blow shir for somebody who's not in shul. Most Jews, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, are sitting in shul anyways. Most people are not walking around carrying their shir. So how many people are we really concerned for? And also just because these people who we're concerned about were going to, so to say, rob the opportunity from others? How do we reconcile that? Now, something that's interesting is that there was a great rabbi. His name was Rabbi Yitzchak Afasi. He lived in Fez, Morocco in the 11th century. Guess what? At his, he had his own court. He ran a court there. In his Bezdin, they would blow shoifer when Rosh Hashanah fell on Shabbos. Because of his understanding of the Gemara, he comes to the conclusion that that's the right thing to do. However, majority of halakhic authorities an overwhelming majority of halachic authorities for over 2,000 years held that you do not build a shaifer when Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbos because of all the scenarios that we have. And the main, one of the main reasons is, like Maimonides writes, that it's not just talking about any court. It's talking about a court that was ordained by an unbroken chain from Moshe Rabbeinu, from Moses, which as we know, towards the end of the times of the Gemara, that already stopped. Even before the end of the Gemara, that already stopped. So you no longer had that. However, Rabbi Yitzhak Afasi felt that that was the right thing to do, and in his bezin they would do it. Something interesting that comes into play, and this was the little clickbait for tonight's class, and that was when they wanted to blow the shreifer on Shabbos, and it goes as follows. In, the eight, in 1881, there was a great rabbi from Hungary, his name was Rav Schlesinger, who moved from Hungary to Israel, to Yerushalayim. That year, that was the end of 1881, that year Rosh Hashanah was going to be on Shabbos. And he knew it. So he wrote a letter to the local rabbinic authorities that he wants to blow Shaifer on Shabbos because he feels that if there is a court here in Jerusalem and there's a shul in Jerusalem called the Rabbi Yechonim ben Zakai shul, right, the one who established to blow Shaifer in the courts on Shabbos. And he says, we want, I want to blow it. And 1881, 1882, both those years, Rosh Hashanah fell on Shabbos. He wanted, he tried pushing. Ultimately, it was rejected. 22 or 23 years later, things that were quiet for 22 or 23 years, in the early 1900s, he brings up the issue again, but this time he's not doing it quietly. He starts publishing in publications that were both in Israel and throughout the leading rabbinic authorities in Europe, trying to rally for support to do this. He openly, most people were rejecting him, quoting other rabbis saying, I heard they rejected it, I heard that rejected it, we're going to reject it. And there were good arguments back and forth, which we're not going to get into right now. It'll take us a little bit too long, maybe uh, in the coming days we'll do it. But going back and forth, to the point that some of the greatest names in the game, so to say, the Maharil Diskin, Rav Shmuel Salant, the Adaris, and many others were involved in this highly controversial subject to the point that many of the great rabbis who were quoted for being against it, when they were asked, they said, absolutely not. We were really actually in support to the point we were going to come to his shul and stand outside just to hear the shayfar on Shabbos. To blow or not to blow? That is the question. Because they felt that we should. 
They said that there were grounds to blow the shifer in this scenario on Shabbos. But ultimately, there was too much public backlash and it didn't end up happening, at least from not that, not from what we know. Although rumor has it that Rav Schlesinger would lock himself in his room and would blow the shoifer on Shabbos. I can't confirm or deny that. It's problematic because if the whole idea is that can only be done in a court, so just because he had the theory wouldn't help him do it. So I don't know if he did. But now, because we see how important it is, just something fascinating, just a little bit of historical stuff. If you look at source number eight, they found this in the Cairo Gniza, right? The Cairo Gniza in 1896 in Shul in Cairo. They found manuscripts that were over a thousand years old. Now it would be over 1200 years old. And in one of the manuscripts, they found liturgy for the night of Rosh Hashanah when it fell out on Shabbos. And you can tell from here what they would actually do. Because, O king who warned the court that they should blow in the courthouse on Shabbos Rosh Hashanah, which means that they did. There was a time where they were blowing. And we're not talking about the times of the Talmud. We're talking about the times maybe a thousand years earlier. We're talking about in the ninth, 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th century. O king who strengthened them with the teaching that the shofar should be tied to a post on Rosh Hashanah, on Shabbos Rosh Hashanah. We see also that they would, what they would do is they wouldn't have a shofar loose in the shul, in, you know, even in the courthouse, because maybe somebody might think that it was carried there. They would tie the shofar to a post in the courthouse, and whoever was blowing the shofar would walk up to the post and put their mouth on the shofar to blow it that way. And it just... Pretty fascinating, O king who made it clear to the congregation not to blow, except in the presence of lawmakers on Shabbos Rosh Hashanah. You see how careful they were. But it also establishes that there was a history for this besides for Rabbeinu Yitzhak Afasi and this little controversy that lasted for about 30 years, the late 1800s, early 1900s. But back to our original question. Not even to put your hand on it. Right. Oh yeah, oh, King is found that they should not not hold it in not hold in the hand, but should place his lips upon it while it is bound. Fascinating. I never saw this before. It's really fascinating. Now, if that's the case, why is it that we won't blow Shaifer on Shabbos? And like we said, the reasons that we don't blow are pretty weak. And the arguments in support of blowing the Shaifer on Shabbos under different circumstances definitely are there. And if not, at least, let's go back to the core issue. And the core issue seems to be, by definition, somewhat weak. And how can we rob, so to say, the Jewish people from doing this mitzvah? How can the rabbis come along and take that away, seemingly, for meek reasons? So, when it comes to what is known as nigla de Torah, the revealed parts of the Torah, it is very difficult. And that's why the arguments are so strong in both directions. But the accepted reality is that it's been like this for 2,000 years for the for majority of the Jewish nation. We did not blow Shaifer when Hashanah falls on Shabbos. So one theory is, at least we have the second day. That's a very nice theory. But the reality is, it's the first day that we have a biblical obligation to hear the Shaifer. And if that's the case, how can we take that away? So Hasidus comes along and gives us the soul of Torah. And that is that sometimes things on a technical or external level either don't fully match up or when they do match up, sometimes it grinds a little and sometimes you have to knock things into place and it doesn't 
have the most perfect fit, but it fits. And that's what happens a lot of times to understanding things from an external perspective. And that exists even within Judaism. But when we get to the soul of the matter, when we get beneath the surface, all that tension falls away and things fit perfectly. And Hasidus explained, and we're going to look at this from two layers. The first layer is, don't think that we have the obligation for Shaifer and we're being robbed the opportunity. Rather, when Rosh Hashanah falls out on Shabbos, there is no need for Shaifer. So the rabbis didn't come along and take something away from us. They came along and they revealed to us that it's not necessary. And the question is why? The first reason given by the Abba but it's actually pretty novel. I didn't see it anywhere else. And that is, one of the reasons why we blow Shaifer, we actually say this in the Psalms chapter 47, is that we are trying to remove the heavenly court from judging us and we want God to sit and judge us. We don't want his court to judge us. We want God himself to judge us. And that's why we blow the shayfar, otherwise known as Allah Elikim Betrua, the Hashem Bekol Shayfar, that we want to remove Elikim, which represents God's court, and draw down Hashem himself to be the one to judge us, because he will judge us favorably and kindly. However, there's an interesting law, and that is that judges generally don't sit down to rule on any matters on Shabbos, unless it's absolutely necessary. However, there's a caveat that is brought in the Code of Jewish Law. That if there's a greater judge than you in town, you should not sit down to judge a case on Shabbos. Have the greater judge be the one to sit down for the case on Shabbos. And if that's the case, if God's Besdin sits down on Shabbos, they're not allowed to. Why? Because there's a greater judge, and that is Hashem Himself. So automatically, Shabbos removes God's Besdin and puts God in the seat the throne of judgment. And therefore, we don't need the shaifer to accomplish that. But there's an even deeper layer here. And there's something that I just saw from, once again, the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And that is that not blowing the shaifer on Shabbos itself is the accomplishment of the shaifer. Right? Sometimes there's silence, but then sometimes there's the sound of silence. There's the piercing noise of silence. And that is when we don't blow shoifer, when our Shoshana falls out on Shabbos, that itself is the sound of the shoifer. What do I mean by that? What is the purpose of the shoifer? So we said before, it's to coronate God as king. Why are we using shoifer? Because that is the primal call of the soul, as we explained. And that's why we're using an animal's horn with simple, there's no tunes, it's just sounds. Showing how we are given over to be God's subjects and committed to God and His plan for us this year to being the best person that I can in the ways of God. And that's what inspires God to sit down on the throne to be king. If that's what the shoifer is all about, and that's why I blow shoifer, the same idea happens on Shabbos. And that's for two reasons. Number one, the fact that a Jew recognizes and keeps Shabbos is because we are attesting that God created the world in seven days and that God is the creator and the ruler of heaven and earth. What greater testament to the fact that I am recognizing God's kingship than keeping Shabbos? So by having Shabbos, automatically, I'm accomplishing what the Shabbos is accomplishing. And the second aspect, and this brings out, what about my call? What about the cry of the Jew who says, enough's enough, 
I don't, no longer want to live this way. I want to improve my life. I want to be able to change who I am. What about that part? You see, there's something interesting about Shabbos. The reason why we don't do work on Shabbos is right, like it says in the Talmud, that when it comes to Shabbos, we have to approach it that as if all my work is done. It's not that when Shabbos shows up, I'm supposed to sit there stressed out, that all my work right now is on pause. I have all of these headaches and all of these bills piling up and all these problems at work and outside world are piling up and that they're all sitting on my head, crushing me for 24 hours, 25 hours. And after 25 hours, I can finally get back to it. That's not Shabbos. Shabbos means to step away from that world looking like everything is perfect. I'm perfect. My children are perfect. My family is perfect. Everything right now is perfect for Shabbos. Why? Because Shabbos is not a time where I'm meant to be dealing with negativity. Shabbos is a time where I'm supposed to dive into a place within my soul where I am perfect, where the world is perfect, and that's what I'm supposed to focus on. And that's why we don't engage in worldly activity. That's why we don't engage in building, creating, cooking, developing, because these are all ideas that the world needs improvement, I need improvement, and yes, these are all true facts, but not on Shabbos. On Shabbos, the world is elevated to a place where everything in its most is in its most perfect state. Based on that idea, we can appreciate what the Shoifer is all about, and that is, there's such a concept as working with the mundane. What does that mean in a person's life? That means me struggling with my shortcomings, with my negativities, with my inclinations. That's me struggling and trying to improve that which isn't the way it should be in my life. That's called struggling. That's called working with the mundane. But then there is mundane activity, which we do on Yom Tif. That is blowing the shayfer. What is that? It's where I'm no longer struggling with the negativity, but I'm distinguishing between me and my negativity. In other words, my negativity still exists, but I'm recognizing there's me and there's my negativity and my negativity doesn't have to define me. And what I'm trying to do is really separate myself to find my core and my essence so I can actually move forward and live a better life. And that is, on Erev Rosh Hashanah, when it's still weekday, the previous Rabbi writes, that's when a person is supposed to work on regretting all the negative things of the past. But the moment the holiday of Rosh Hashanah starts, do not dwell on the negativity and do not dwell on the past anymore. It's inappropriate. It's mundane. That was for the weekday. What should I be doing now? Focusing on finding my inner core to separate from all of that negativity. So I'm working with the good, but it still has some level of connection with the negativity. But when it comes to Shabbos, we don't even do mundane activity that's permitted, such as blowing the shayfar. Why? Because on Shabbos, we're supposed to be in a state where we're reveling in our infinite good and that that's it that exists. It's not even that I have negativity and that I need to identify a part of myself that is greater than that negativity, but I have to be able to just see that beauty and the infinity of my soul and tap into that. So therefore, when Rosh Hashanah falls out on Shabbos, on the contrary, we're accomplishing something much greater by not blowing shayfar. But then you're going to ask, so then why in the base of English would they blow Shafer? Mm-hmm. If all that is true, so why is there a place where they are blowing Shafer on Shabbos? And in short, without getting too technical, the way Hasidus explains it is because in the base of Mikdash, you can be standing there because it's such a holy place. It's a place where creator and creation, heaven and earth, finite and infinite meet. 
that even with all the negativity that may exist, and even that doesn't stand in the way of perfection. As long as we're not standing in that place of holiness, it does. And that's why outside of the Basin Mikdash, we can't accomplish it with a shayfer, but in the Basin Mikdash, we could. And we can accomplish it even more. And that's what we pray for. That's where we want to stand. But ultimately, when we're able to do that, when we're able to experience that this year on Shabbos, when standing there hearing the shayfer with all these 10 reasons in mind, and with being able to, or standing here, they're not hearing the shayfer on Shabbos, experiencing the true infinity of our soul, the true cry of our soul, of touching that part of ourselves, of the true essence of who we are in connection with God, we will definitely be given a sweet, holy, and happy year. May we be able to hear Shoifer this year on Shabbos because we'll be in the Beis Mikdash, the third Beis Mikdash. Please, God. Thank you for joining us tonight. If there are any questions.